Hello and welcome. I'm Roger Ream, and this is the Liberty and Leadership Podcast, a conversation with TFAS alumni, supporters, faculty, and friends who are making a real impact in public policy, business, philanthropy, law, and journalism. Today, my guest is Chris Allman, president of Allman Communications, senior advisor at Narrative Communications, and world champion Whistler. You heard that right. Chris is a four-time international whistling champion. He is also the author of two books, Find Your Whistle, Simple Gifts, Touch Hearts, and Change Lives, and one that was just released, Four Billionaires and a Parking Attendant, Success Strategies of the Wealthy, Powerful, and Just Plain Wise. Chris was elected to the TFAS Board of Trustees in July 2023, following over two decades as a key supporter of our work, including as a volunteer, speaker, and supporter. He often speaks to students on professional development and networking. He served as a mentor to students since 2001 and joined the Board of Regents in 2017. Chris, thank you for joining me today, and congratulations on your new book. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Well, Roger, it's great to be here, and uh, thanks for this opportunity. Well, uh, I appreciate you joining me, and uh, let me say right off the bat that I truly enjoyed reading the book, uh, which is just coming uh, out publicly for sale now. Uh, but for, before we get into it, uh, let me set the stage a little. You've had a distinguished career in the public and private sector, uh, focused mainly on roles in communications. Uh, how did this focus on communications come about? Well, first, I, it warms my heart that you read the book and liked it. So uh, that that you know, for an author, that is a really neat experience is, you know, to put all this work into something and then have people react to it. So this is a, it's an important part of the journey. Uh, and uh, so I've had a a really amazing and very blessed career. Uh, I came to Washington in 1987, and so for 36 years, I've been in the communications world and. Capitol Hill, the executive branch in a Republican and a Democratic administration, uh, private sector at, at a place that you're very familiar with, Citizens for a Sound Economy, uh, you know, free market advocacy group. Uh, then I was at the Carlisle Group, which is a global investment firm for 18 years, running their global communications function. And then five years ago, started my own PR firm. And uh, it's me. And when you call Ullman Communications, you get Ullman. So I've had this really amazing career and I've just met <clears throat> these amazing people along the way and I love Washington. I've, I've met my wife here. We have three children. It's, it's a great city and um, just really, really blessed. Well, uh, this uh, career path you described in a nutshell there has given you the opportunity to work with some incredible people and some very wealthy people. But I guess right off the bat, the title, Four Billionaires and a Parking Attendant, uh, I want to disabuse people of the idea that this is some uh, formula for uh, get, which, get rich quick or something like that. It's uh, more importantly, I think, it's, it's how we can each as a person be a better person and fully utilize the talents and skills that we were born with. Uh, That's uh, exactly it. You, you, know, um, you know, titles are um, important. And the this title is meant to kind of show this juxtaposition between wealth, uh, the, the four billionaires, and kind of 
the common folk, you know, a parking attendant. And that wisdom can come from anyone. And that's uh, captured in the title. Uh, there are 15 people featured in the book, 14 of whom are either billionaires or they were CEO of this or governor of that or chairman of this. So there are these like potentate type people. But this parking attendant, uh, a young man named Sala, who is an Ethiopian immigrant, just really touched my heart. And that lesson is about choosing to be happy. Uh, and it had just a big impact on me as a person. And, you know, especially when I, because I've known so many like hyper uber successful people and, you know, they're not all happy. And uh, that's why this notion of like choosing to be happy is so important and powerful. And uh, that said, uh, what I've learned from the, these big wigs has just changed my life. It, you know, it took me from kind of the minor leagues to the major leagues in terms of the types of things I was exposed to, but perhaps more importantly, helping me understand how to be my best. Because at its core, this book is about success, however you define it. It is not a prescription for being a billionaire. Now, if that's your objective, that's fine by me. I'm a capitalist. But ultimately, this is about how can you be your best? How can you be successful however you define it? Well, I'll uh, not necessarily follow the order of the way you laid out the book there. But since you mentioned the parking lot attendant, uh, I remember you in the book, quote, uh, David Rubenstein, founder of uh, one of the founders of Carlisle and a, one of the billionaires in your book, as commenting that most of the wealthy people he knew were not happy. Uh, I think you mentioned that in the context of this advice from the parking lot attendant. And uh, I have always thought choosing to be happy is that it is a choice that a person makes. I mean, it's sometimes a difficult choice to make because of things yeah. happening in a person's life. But talk a little yeah. about that story of the parking attendant. And yeah, what, to think about it that to be blessed with immense wealth and to not be happy, it is a tragedy. And then you have the flip side of this young man who's an immigrant from Ethiopia, learning English, learning the American ways, who when I would drive into the parking garage at Carlisle every day for four years, who would greet me with this brilliant smile and a good morning, Mr. Chris, how are you? And we talk about our weekends, talk about our families, talk about our faith. And I was just amazed at how he ap approaches life, that it is a choice. And because I, he and I have talked about this, that it's partly about his faith, that you know, he's a devout Muslim. And you know, Muhammad says, you must love your neighbor. You must be a part of your community and you must have this bright outlook. So that's a big part of what motivates him. And it is infectious and it just really touched my heart. And we, beca we became such buddies that when he became an American citizen, um, I took my daughters to his naturalization ceremony. And if folks listening right now have never been to a naturalization ceremony, they must go because it is a magical experience to see a whole group of people of different religions and, and um, ethnicities, the color of their skin you know, across the rainbow, all pledging allegiance to a new country, and not just any country, but America. And for an American to see that, it is, it's amazing. And 
Uh, I remember giving Sala his first American flag after that ceremony. So he's had a big impact on me, and he has earned his way into this book. And you almost didn't make it to the ceremony, but that's Woo! another story that we won't go into story. today. <laughs> <laughs> but we did make it. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, in that same section of the book, you also said something interesting. Is uh, We don't have to go further with this, but you talked about uh, the too many people, I think, are concerned with the wealth disparity instead of the happiness disparity. That, that is, I thought that was a good I, way I, of putting it. I suspected it. you would pick that up. <laughs> yes. Uh, I wish there were – Less of a gap in in the wealth, and and I let me reference one thing related to that. I think that being blessed with wealth, however hard you worked for it, is a duty, and but it's also this immense opportunity, because what's interesting about wealth is that you don't worry about the normal things that virtually everyone else worries about: food, clothing, shelter, daycare, elder care. You name it, you don't worry about any of those things. So in the absence of that, you would think that having all this money would actually uh, – you'd be able to spend more time figuring out how do I harness it effectively and then do something with it to actually make the world around me better, which in itself should bring you a lot of joy. Mm -hmm. So that's the great mm -hmm. irony or conundrum. Yeah, yeah. Well, let, let's start with your first strategy in there. It's about being purposeful. And uh, I think that's uh, – there's a lot in there. You talk about – a lot about Arthur Levitt there. Yeah. Uh, one of his strategies, I'll call it, is to uh, think every day what your successor would do yeah. if he were in your job. But uh, I think being purposeful is is just an important uh, point you make. So could you talk a little bit about what you write in that chapter? Yeah, that section – so the book is broken into these eight success strategies, the first one being be purposeful because it really – it sets you on a path. You know, to have purpose – and I, I also refer to it ha as having an it. Like what's your thing? And do you have it and do you embrace it and are you in pursuit of it? Whatever your it is, at a one point – uh, I wanted to become the best whistler in the world, and it took years and years of work, and arguably I achieved it, uh, for at least for a brief shining moment until other great whistlers came up. Um, I my Another it was being focused on being the best communications person that I could be, whether it was at uh, the budget committee or the White House or the Carlisle Group. So having purpose – to guide us is just so central. And when you meet people, especially young people, and you'll say, well, what are you into? What do you want to do? And they're like, well, you know, I don't know. And I'm like, oh, my God, how is that possible to think that, you know, especially someone who has education, has a family that supports them, has the internet with exposure to an immense and like unfathomable about, uh, amount of information that can excite and, and entice you to not know what your purpose is. And, and so – and it's not this black or white thing that you find purpose one day. And it's a journey in itself and purpose can evolve over time. But having purpose is so important. That, and so that, that lesson you referenced, like think like your successor every day. Um, and it's a super powerful lesson. It's this notion of you know, I go to work every day. And I get in, get used to doing things and today is like yesterday and tomorrow will be like today and these patterns get established and are we handcuffed by this constancy or are, are our brains open 
and welcoming, if not actually soliciting new ways of thinking. Because if you lose your job or you quit or you die and someone else takes your job the next day, they're going to come in and they're going to survey everything you did. And they're going to say, brilliant, good, mediocre, and crazy. <laughs> well, why should I wait for someone else to come in to dispense with the mediocre and crazy? I should be doing that. But it's hard because – and that's really a, a key part of this book, especially in terms of the how. How do I embrace these lessons is by being humble and being open-minded so that when I'm exposed to these 50 lessons from these immensely successful people, I can actually envision me you know, embracing them, doing them. And none of this – this is really important. None of this is rocket science. This is actionable stuff. You know, if I had said, if you can run the Boston Marathon in a 3.30 time, then you'll be successful. Most people would just kind of schlump over and say, uh, I'm not even going to try. But that it's not even slightly that. This is basic stuff about being humble and open-minded and, you know, being purposeful so that I will decide uh, and it, uh, what is bad because I'm getting good feedback, discard it, and then – be able to up my game. Like that's not rocket science. It's about being humble and open-minded, which are basic things. In that in that section on uh, being purposeful, you tell the story of uh, your work with Mitch Daniels when he was the director of the Office of Management and Budget. Mitch is a um, TFAS trustee emeritus. And uh, I know you and I were both with him earlier this year in Florida. Uh, but the lesson you bring from him uh, as part of the being personal is def define your brand. Uh, could you talk some about that? I think that's something that people are would be interested in is how you define your brand. Yeah. So brand, in my definition of a brand, and, and this is not the visual brand like the, the Coca-Cola logo. That is not what we're talking about. What we're talking about here is this kind of emotional reaction and kind of set of facts that you – and that you develop um, in yourself and so other people are reacting to you and understanding things about you. And Mitch, uh, who is an incredible leader. So I first met him at the White House but have followed his career when he was governor of Indiana for two terms and then president of Purdue for 12 years yeah. or something like that. Yeah. So he has very thoughtfully paid very close attention to his brand. Now, some people might say, oh, well, that's just so engineered. It's not authentic. And I'd say it's actually incredibly authentic because his brand really was him. But as I, as a professional communicator, what I have long said is that if you don't define your brand, someone else will. And when you're in a political world, it you won't like the way they define you. So Mitch really worked on his brand. So what is Mitch's brand? So Mitch is whip smart, thrifty. Super creative, indefatigable. The guy just works like a dog. Fantastic writer and became uh, a man of the people like when he was running for governor. And I, I realized this years later like of just how well he had defined his brand by reading a feature article about him in Business Week magazine. So I, I hadn't talked to him in a few years and so I'm just reading this article and it's like check, check. Check like every one of his so-called brand attributes of what makes Mitch Mitch was in there. So it was clearly defined and he was consistent with it because if you're not consistent, 
then it's not going to be observable by people on the outside just over time. And so when you're running for office or um, or even much more prosaic, if you're, as I like to say, if you're just a normal human, your brand matters because you maybe want to have a date. You want to get a loan from a bank. You want to get a job. And your brand is going to be a good brand or a bad brand. Are you a reliable person or not? Are you inquisitive or not? Uh, are you a team player or not? And these are all kind of attributes that can be part of your personal brand. So that kind of the key takeaway here is the importance of both defining what your brand is and then living it, like being authentic and then sharing that over time with people. Yeah. Uh, I think the Mitch Daniels example is excellent because uh, he didn't create a brand that was inconsistent with who he was, as, as, as you were saying. And that's reinforced by the fact that, you know, he got on a Harley Davidson uh, when he campaigned for governor. He stayed in people's homes, not in expensive hotels. And uh, that's something he could do because it fit with who he was as a person. He wasn't doing something artificial. Yeah. I, don't, I don't see, you know, other candidates yeah. being able to do something do you like remember that. they they started calling him my man Mitch yeah yeah, yeah because he's, he's like a Mitch <laughs> a man you know, of he's the just kind of like a man yeah. of the people and uh, and it really yeah. helped him and that's who he was he didn't fake it mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. well the the second of your eight strategies is to uh, innovate and accomplish and there you uh, tell a number of great stories uh, to illustrate that but you tell the story of uh, Adina Friedman uh, who was a colleague of yours at Carlisle and then left for, uh, was it Goldman Sachs? No, uh, NASDAQ. NASDAQ, yep. yeah, and very successful at NASDAQ, became the CEO and then I think chairman of yep. NASDAQ. Yep. Uh, but you cite her as an example who's someone who really had a strategic plan for her career. She, she knew what her it was, yep. I think. And uh, could you talk a little bit about the concept of being purposeful and uh, you know innovating to accomplish? Yeah, yeah. So in all the, the mentoring I've done through TFAS, which I have immensely loved, and a little sidebar, this book effectively came about because of TFAS. So I found myself over the past quarter century just meeting with dozens, if not hundreds, of TFAS students, helping them think through their careers, and then saying, oh, let me tell you the story about Adina, or Arthur Levin, or David Rubenstein, and that kind of would help them figure out life. And so I accumulated a whole bunch of these lessons, you know, 15 or so. And I said, I should write a book. Yeah, yeah, good. <laughs> but I didn't, good. I didn't have enough. So I sat down and I would encourage everyone to do this. Sit down and think of all the people who have affected your career and your life and then say, what did I learn from them? And if for no other reason to give them credit, like to call them up and say, you really touched my heart, my brain, my career, my life. And I'm grateful for that. So what I realized was this – and this, I really came to life working for Adina. So Adina really melds together both the tactical and the strategic when thinking about her career. You know, there's this old notion. I think it was from Wayne Gretzky, the great hockey player, who said, I don't skate to where the puck is. I skate to where the puck is going. And that is the strategic approach to your career is to say, all right, I'm 25 years old. Now, I want to be a CEO someday. It's not going to be next year. Probably won't even be in 10 years, but it might be in 20 years. So what do I have to do between now and then to kind of strategically position myself 
for success, like to eventually become a CEO. That is very strategic. And you have to think about who are the people I will need to know? What are the types of jobs I will need to have along that journey? So it's very, that's pretty strategic stuff. On the tactical side, and I tend to be very tactical and not strategic enough, which is why this lesson really impacted me. So like I've approached things from a very tactical, do I like that job? Do I like the people? Do they pay me well? Does my opinion count? Is there room for growth? Those are all important, but it's not strategic. And because of Adina, I saw what she did with her career is that they got to a point where she didn't. She realized she was not going to become the CEO of Carlisle. So she left. She went back to NASDAQ where she had been before, became president, and two years later, she's CEO. Two years later, she's chair and CEO. Um, and I said, wow, that's strategic. So around kind of eight years ago, I said, hmm, I think my future at Carlisle is kind of winding down. I had been there for 15 years and I had pretty much done all I could do. So I said, well, what am I going to do next? And I said, well, I want to start my own PR firm, even though I'll be 55 years old at that point. And I said, well, what are the things that I have to do between now and then to make that happen? So it was a, a much more strategic look at where I was and where I wanted to be, and then taking these kind of micro steps to get there. And it's worked. So, you know, past five years, I've been on my own and very pleased with how it's going. And I attribute a lot of that to Adina's very strategic thinking and seeing it in, in action. I mean, once they named someone who was likely going to be successor to the, the current founders, I was like, oh, she's not going to be around much longer. And she she left. And I'm really impressed by that. She didn't say, woe is me. She took action and and like furthered, furthered her career. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I don't think the words time management appear in the book, which is is probably a good thing. But they actually don't. That's a good point. <laughs> but it's clear that uh, what a lot of these people have in common is a focus on what's important. Uh, you quote, uh, I think it's David Rubenstein saying that uh, uh, he's sprinting to the finish line. Mm-hmm. Uh, so and you know you you tell the the fact that he doesn't watch much TV at all, rarely takes vacations, rarely sleeps. I think doesn't futz around. Yeah. I think you put it. <laughs> uh, these people are. Uh, I won't say they have a single minded focus because many of them are uh, involved in a number of different things besides just their career. But but they don't waste time. Uh, and uh, could you explain kind of the importance of focus and? Uh, Impatience yeah. is another thing. I think uh, oh, which you talk about impatience. impatience. Some oh, of yes. The, the power of impatience. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Actually, the quick anecdote there with impatience where Arthur Levitt, who was then the chair of the Securities and Exchange Commission, and I was his spokesman, were standing in his office, and he's just rattling off things. Hey, all right, we need to do this. We need to do that. And do this, do this, do this, do this. And I'm like, all right, this sounds good. What about that? Yeah, let's do that. And then when he got to the last item, he said, well, how's it going? And I said – well, what do you mean? And he said, well, with task number one. And I said, how can I do task number one? I'm sitting here talking to you. And he's like, you better get going. You know? <laughs> now that, that is like harnessing impatience yeah. to go get stuff done. You know, people have said to me, how did you have, find time to write a book? You know, you're, you have a busy career. You have three kids. You're doing all sorts of things. 
And I said, I don't watch a lot of TV. I sleep a reasonable amount, not too much. I, I avoid social media. And, you know, that it is such a time suck of all. And, and I see my kids doing it. I'm like, stop, stop. Life is short. And, you know, I'm 60 years old now and it's becoming even like more noticeable that time is short and, and life is a gift and we must embrace every moment. So, and a lot of that came from Rubenstein because he is a man on a mission. He is literally, and I, I would challenge anyone in the world to find a busier human than David Rubenstein, like his capacity um, to do stuff. Like he's chairman of five major organizations. Like these are not dinky things. Yeah. University of Chicago, the Kennedy Center, the Carlisle Group, the Council on Foreign Relations, the National Gallery of Art. It was actually six and the Economic Club of Washington. And he's active. Yeah. This is not some, yeah. you know, just. Not just title. Yeah, it's not just a title. <laughs> so, and, you know, he doesn't go on Twitter and do stupid things with that. And I mean, not that it can't be. He also hosts several oh TV my God. shows. He wrote four books in four years. He's got uh, three TV shows that he hosts. It's it's stunning. So, and you mentioned earlier his philosophy of sprinting to the finish. And it is really fascinating philosophy, which is not not to sprint to your death, but to, to sprint in terms of getting as much of your dreams accomplished while you have time. Um, and it's amazing. Uh, and I, I have uh, tons of dreams. Like my next dream is to write a screenplay about Beethoven's Ninth Symphony to make a major motion picture, which is the craziest thing I've ever thought of. But why not? You know, right. Who's stopping me? No, now, maybe I'll right. succeed. Maybe I won't. But, and so to – and this is really the key is that you know, I grew up in this kind of regular middle class Long Island you know, and people wanted you to succeed. But it, it was not a supercharged type environment. You know, I get to Washington and I am around these just super bigwigs, John Kasich and Arthur Levin and Mitch Daniels and all these billionaires and Glenn Youngkin. And you're like, wow, wow, I, how do I learn from that? And it just supercharged my life. It doesn't mean I'm better than anyone or anything like that. It just means that I am trying to be my best. And this is a lesson I teach my children. I said, if if getting a B is your best and you can say that with a straight face, then I accept that. But if you get a B and you're like, well, I shouldn't have gone on TikTok so often. I'm like, all right, we need to change something. So that is at the core what we're trying to accomplish with this book is to say to someone, you know, what, what is my idea of success? And then what are the mindset that I need to get there, which is having drive, having humility, having discipline, which are really tools, and then being exposed to ideas and lessons and practices that are very accessible. This is not rocket science I'm dealing with here. And that is really the key. And it, it will just supercharge your life. Yeah. Well, I, I think you've accomplished it with this book. And uh, now the challenge, of course, is getting it in the hands of people of all ages, really. I, uh, you know, I've, I'm obviously uh, toward the tail end of my career uh in my life but i found things that are actionable things in there that i want to implement in in my day-to-day -day life in my office wow. and uh i also uh think it's a book that i want to buy for 
you know, everyone on our team at, at TFAS to read, young people, young and old alike. Uh, I think it's particularly good for young people to read it. Uh, some of the lessons won't resonate as much now, but they'll be living it as they go through their careers. So, yeah, well, that's it warms my heart to hear that. Yeah. And uh, because I'm at this point, I turned 60 this year, yeah. and I say, all right, like hopefully I have 20, 25 good years left. Right. And um, so I actually printed up a whole bunch of these. And anytime I mentor a TFAS student, I'm just going to give them a copy of it, yeah. the soft covers. Yeah. And, and because that is, you know, a, a key way for me to give back and yeah. say, and I look people in the eye and I say, look at me right now, right here. And I say, if you read this book, it'll change your life. Like not marginally, it will radically change your yeah. life. And don't you want that? You well, know? and the, the examples you give, because you tell stories and real life experiences, they have a stickiness that I think will stick with people. And then I should mention, you also, uh, in the conclusion, you have uh, things not to do. You have your list of uh, a quick, oh, yeah, uh, top 10 things you shouldn't do and, uh, and some additional advice that you throw yeah. at the end, which is also uh, is very good advice. Yeah, and, because uh, you could easily – read this book and say, oh, it's just a suck up to all these rich people that he's worked for. And uh, they are human just like everyone else. The working title for this book was Rich People Have Feelings Too, <laughs> which which does get a chuckle out of most people. But I learned a lot of things you shouldn't do. Now, I don't attribute them to any individual. I do have a – these are my friends and I do have an active consulting business that I need to stay active. So – but they are very powerful and – like one is don't let emotion rule. Uh, don't bow down to the committee. I mean, I've seen that so many times where you, in, in an effort to you know get consensus, you just water down yeah. the idea or the direction or things like that. Um, another is just don't be mean. I mean, I've had I didn't know bosses who were just mean people, and then, and like don't be arbitrary, which I detest probably more than anything. And I learned, you know, we all are sinners and imperfect people and me right up there. So these have affected me as well if I ever felt I was being arbitrary because arbitrary is where someone says, why are we doing that? Well, because. Yeah. Like that's arbitrary and like versus having facts and logic that uh, kind of almost like dictate that this is a logical way to proceed. So um, yeah, so there's there's good and bad. Most of them are yeah. good. Yeah. Well, in, among your strategies are being humble, being authentic, uh, things that I think clearly we all value, but this gives you the actionable side of yeah. it. Yeah. How, how do you uh, promote a book like this besides coming on this podcast? <laughs> this uh, book, because I'm on this podcast, I will sell 100,000 <laughs> books. I'm very, very excited. Um, well, I, I do marketing for a living. Yeah. So it is uh, word of mouth. So I've told all my friends multiple times. Uh, everyone I whistle happy birthday for, and I do it 650 times a year, I sent a personalized note to. So who knows how many of them will buy it, but hopefully some. Um, then there's uh, what's called paid – no, no, excuse me, earned media where I get uh, articles written in newspapers or I, I get More on NPR or something like that. Yeah. Then there's podcasts. So podcasts are, are uh, a really powerful tool for getting the word out. Uh, and then events. So we'll have book parties. And then yeah. another big area is just speaking uh, gigs, I call them, where you a, a company hires you to come and give a talk as you know to their associate class of lawyers yeah. or 
or if I go to Ernst and Young, they have their their class of new accountants, and they bring in speakers to inspire them. And so, as we did this summer when you spoke at our kickoff, ceremony yeah, for yeah, which was students. a great, great honor. Yeah, um, and so uh, it's it, it, what's really fascinating. So you write a book, and you're in your own head for a long time, and then. You have to then go market it, mm-hmm. and you have to try to pluck out things that will be relevant for a particular audience. So that's a, a whole other set of challenges, which uh, I'm embarking on now because the book is out, um, you know, in October. So uh, we're gearing up for that. Did you? Did you? Uh, I'm, I'm interested in how you wrote this. Did you set aside a few hours every day over a long period of time? Did you put us, you know, take a month and focus 100 percent on it, or was it a multi-year? I mean, obviously, you See. gathered these stories. Well, you gathered these stories throughout your your career. Yeah, but uh, yeah. So, um, but how do you actually I, get them into the form of? Yeah. A so it, it it really it took around two years of like heavy thinking, writing, and then kind of sprinkle with talking. And what I mean by talking is that when I'm at any kind of event, people say, "Oh, what's going on?" I say, "Oh, I'm writing a book." Oh, what are you writing a book about? And I would tell people, and you just run some of the lessons by them. And especially in the early stages, I was really curious about the structure. Like, how do you structure a book like this? And and that in itself is is a big challenge. And my publisher was very ha- helpful in coming up with the structure. And, um, and then it's a uh, early in the morning, late at night, anytime I'm on a plane mm-hmm. or taking the Acela up to New York, you know, I would purposely take the 5 a.m. Acela so I could write for three hours and just put on my headphones, listen to great classical music and write, 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 write. And um, and then re- things really start to take shape. You know, at first you're just coming up with what is the actual thing I learned? So you write that down. But then you actually have to tell a story because each lesson is an mm-hmm. anecdote. Mm-hmm. So it's not just you should be humble. Yeah. Well, let me tell you a story about a billionaire who served me on his jet, who, you know, I would have expected he would want me to serve him. And I was like, oh, wow, that's, I didn't expect that. Um, so humility can come from different ways. So, and then, then, then uh, you put them in groups and then you give it to a lot of people and they read it and give you feedback. And, um, and what's really challenging is when people have diametrically opposed reactions to certain things. And then you have to see what patterns emerge from your your, edit, your readers and then and you just have to make judgments about what you keep and what you change and, and all that. So it is an amazing journey to go through. The outcome's, I think, a yeah. big success. Your, your first book was Find Your Whistle. Uh, and it was about finding, you know, a simple gift to touch people's hearts and change their lives. You also did a TED Talk that was on the theme of race and race relations. And again, that TED Talk, I think, was very popular and, and got a lot of attention and, and I think probably in, very much influenced in a positive way the people listened to it. Uh, but could you touch on the, the lessons from that TED Talk? Yeah, you know, so there have, and I think anyone who's been paying attention has seen that there have been a number of tragic, you know, killings of, you know, black people for the most part. Now, there are a lot of white people who are killed as well, but there's been a a ton of attention, um, like Trayvon Martin and George Floyd and and many others. And, And, you know, each one is unique, but some patterns emerge. And just as a citizen, 
who's reading the newspaper and hearing chatter about it at work or online or whatever. You know, and, you know, I say to myself, well, what can I do about it? Like, literally, what can I do about it? And I was just growing frustrated that I feel like there was nothing I could do. So I, I actually sat down and like, thought through what are the steps or the mindset you should have for um, healing division and, you know, among races. And then I was reminded of this incredible anecdote from 20 plus years ago where I was uh, mentoring uh, a young black boy in you know, the tough part of DC, a place called Anacostia. And he and I were out to dinner one night at a McDonald's and it was just you know, the young black boy and the middle-aged white guy. And a black woman just walks up to us and says, hey, what's going on with you and the boy? Clearly with a tone of concern. And at that moment, I realized I could either say, take a hike, lady, you got a problem with me being white, or I could stand up, extend my hand and say, hi, I'm Chris Ullman. This is Monte. And we're in this Christian mentoring program and we're just out getting a bite to eat. So I did the latter, praise God. And like just the scales fall from her eyes and, she's, and she goes from skepticism to we need more people like you. And so then I kind of – I try to deconstruct that event. So and, – and, you know, among the attributes are, you know, benefit of the doubt, you know, de-escalation. Those are just really fundamental. And ultimately, it's just love. If you actually love your fellow human, just because they're human, a child of God, that in itself, um, at least in a laboratory, <laughs> can heal some of the division. And I saw it work in a McDonald's. So I, I proposed this TED Talk because I was tired of being on the sidelines. And at first they said, well, you're just you know some Wall Street older white guy. What can people learn from you? And I said, well, I got this great story and I think an important message. And they, I told them and they said, wow, that's a great story, an important message. You can do your TED Talk. And it was an amazing experience. And um, you know, I, I, that's what we need more of, you know, less gotcha and, and less I'm right, you're wrong, which is a f- core problem with public discourse today. It's this notion of literally I'm 100% right and you're 100% wrong. And that is some weird planet that I'm unfamiliar with. Well, th- through your mentoring, which you do a lot of, a lot of it with TFAS and, and our, our students, uh, what kind of general conclusions have you reached about the rising generation? And you know, they, uh, what are your impressions of the students at TFAS that you encounter? And Yeah. Um, well, I've, I love being affiliated with the program. I think just philosophically uh, in terms of uh, providing important information to the students about government and economics and international affairs is it's a great mission. The encoupling that with this, you know, intense professional development, uh, teaching them how to network and you know, kind of the practical side of having a job, which which is why they have internships. So the the whole format, the philosophy and approach, I think, is spot on for for what's necessary. Caliber of the students, very, very impressive. Um, and, you know, at the same time, I have found over the years is that it's, it's kind of a – there's always, I'd say, 10 to 15 percent of every group I deal with are the stars. They are the ones who are like hungry sponges mm-hmm. that after a talk, they come right up to you and say, 
Um, can I meet with you? Can I ask you questions? Can I learn about your career? And I'm always a little disappointed that more people don't do that. Now, I would just run out of time if they did. I'd have to figure out a new model. So, so even among a more uh, select group of students, you still have the, the, the top performers, those who are really curious. I've helped a number of them get jobs over the years, and they're, and they're in that 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 small group that are like the super self-starters. And those are the ones I like to work with the most because, you know, they go to a mentoring session with a hunger and an open mind and really good questions. And, and effectively they're doing this benchmarking where they say, this is a job I'm interested in. And I go find people who do that job and then try to figure out, does that make sense for me? And like, that's a really logical way to approach it. So I, I love doing it. It's it's a great way to give back to the next generation. And uh, I am just so grateful for your leadership and what you've done for 30, just about 30 years. Yeah. <laughs> which <is> incredible. Oh, <laughs> 30, that's right, 32. Well, you you uh, this summer in our in our kickoff program uh, at George Mason, you told the, the students, you gave them some good advice, but some of it was – uh, very much on the topic of, you know, don't be shy, you know, in terms of networking. You basically were, in a sense, saying, after I finish this lecture today, come up and talk to me. Give me your card if yeah. you want to get together. And That's uh, right. But, and you told a great story about uh, on your way going to a, uh, was it a lacrosse game or something and running into someone along the way in his car. Yeah, uh, yep. Oh, it was an uh, amazing, amazing story. And yeah, it's all about just like being open-minded, yeah. being curious, exactly, and and the like. And I ended up having. You want me to tell the story? You can I tell mean, the story. It's, it's yeah, a great. I, thought, it's a I great think it's story. a good story to tell in the context of what the message you were conveying. Yeah, to yeah. Students. So what I I was I told this story um, because I often view life like a, a pinball game that once you press that button and the flipper hits the ball. You don't know where the ball's going to go. <laughs> That's for sure. And, and and that is what life is like. I often equate it to skiing. It is a controlled fall. Well, you hope you're in control. So you start at the top and then you, if you just stay at the top, you know, the view may be great, but you're, you ain't getting nothing done. But once you point those skis downhill, you are falling and you're experiencing and you will – literally fall and but you may take air and rejoice as well so uh, so it's that spirit of openness and curiosity and not knowing what's going to happen if I do a certain thing so this real quick story is I was um, at my uh, going to my daughter's softball, softball game and this guy just uh, parked the car at the field and this guy pulls up in this really cool Tesla and he says, hey, I saw your bumper sticker uh, and it says High Point University on it and that's where my son goes to school. And I said, oh yeah, my son goes to school there. And he said, my son just graduated from there. And I said, wow, that's great. Small world. And then he said, and then I saw your other bumper sticker that says, um, got Springbok. And he said, I said, yeah. I said, a Springbok is a, a miniature African antelope. I said, do you know what a springbok is? He said, I'm a springbok. And I'm like, what the heck does that mean? <laughs> and it's, and it's he had a uh, South African accent. It turns out the springbok, this little uh, antelope, is the national animal of South Africa. And it's also the symbol for the sports teams. And he was on the national swimming team. So he was a springbok. springbok. And he just said, um, I 
I said, well, um, hey, we're, we're late for the game. You want to come with us? He's like, oh, no, no. He said, I just saw you on the highway and followed you here. And I'm like, <laughs> oh, my gosh, that's freaky. So then I said to him, um, what do you do for a living? <laughs> and he said, well, I'm, a, I'm a lung transplant specialist at Fairfax and Nova Hospital. I'm like, that is even freakier. <laughs> I said, we have to have lunch. And so we exchanged cards and we did. We lunch. went and had lunch. And he's the nicest guy. And, you know, my mother has lung issues, so if she needs a lung transplant, I know who I'm going to call. <laughs> so, like, I don't know what's going to happen with that friendship. Yeah. But it was fun, and it's a great story, but it's more of a mindset. Are you open or not? Uh, and are you – Are you on the front – you know, the British have this great expression about are you on the front foot or on the back foot? You know, on the front foot – and there's, some, there's yeah. actually a lesson in the book about being on the front foot is – your knees are bent. Your eyes are twitchy. Your hands are ready. You are ready for the rebound. You are. You don't know if it's coming your way, but if it does, you're going to grab it. And that is the way people should be. It's like to be on the front foot and like engaged in life rather than letting things just kind of passively go by them. Let go of that v handle that sends that pinball That's flying right. into the – off the Flick bumpers. Yeah. yeah. I love yeah. that. Well, uh, this has been a real pleasure. Thank you for sharing uh, the lessons in your book as well as a few others. Uh, let me, if you don't mind, I'll sure. hold up the book <laughs> for those watching on YouTube. It's Four Billionaires and a Parking Attendant, and the subtitle is Success Strategies of the Wealthy, Powerful, and Just Plain Wise. So I, I highly recommend this book. Uh, I hope everyone will buy one for themselves as well as for their friends because <laughs> uh, it's got great advice and it's presented in a, with a great uh, writing style and uh, in a storytelling manner. So, Chris, it's been a pleasure to be with you. But before we go, I would really love it if you would share with us some of your talents with regard to whistling. Would you whistle a song for us? I, I would be delighted. And uh, thank you for having me today, Roger. Yeah. I really appreciate it. Yeah. So this is uh, Belle from Beauty and the Beast. applause. Woo! <laughs> That's wonderful. That's a great talent you've harnessed and for a lot of good. I know uh, you've you've whistled for my uh, eight-year-old uh, well, it, it's my uh, niece's eight-year-old son who's battling been battling cancer. You've whistled for a lot of people who, who've needed brightening up uh, and uh, in their lives. And so thank you for doing that. And you've whistled a ton of happy birthdays to people around the world. So. Well, it's, it's, uh, it's a blessing that I am happy to share. Yeah. So thank you. Yeah. My guest today has been Chris Allman. We're here at Reason Studios. We give thanks to Reason Magazine for letting us use their studios today. I love Reason, and I am a subscriber. <laughs> Wonderful. Thank you for listening to the Liberty and Leadership Podcast. Please don't forget to subscribe, download, like, or share the show on Apple, Spotify, or YouTube, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you like this episode, I ask you to rate and review it. And if you have a comment or question for the show, please drop us an email at podcast at tfas.org. The Liberty and Leadership Podcast is produced at K Global Studios in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Roger Reen. And until next time, show courage in things large and small. <laughs>